please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4 as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. As you turn there, just a reminder that beginning next Sunday is our local missions week, and you can look at the back of your bulletin for more information about some of the exciting activities we'll be doing during that week to highlight our local missions ministries. Also, again, just uh, extending the invitation for you uh, to you to come back this evening at to Camp Good News to find out more about uh, the upcoming changes in our church. We'll be talking, as has been mentioned earlier, about the, the new church constitution. And uh, we'll be hearing testimonies from four of the six men who are uh, being considered to become our, our lay elders. And so I encourage you to come and, and, uh, and get a chance to, to speak with, with those men that I believe the Lord is, is calling to a very exciting ministry. I'm very blessed as a church to, to have, have them. Well, please uh, stand with me now as we look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. See the temptation of Jesus. I'll be reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Our Heavenly Father, we beseech you this morning that you would allow us to see through the deceit of sin. We know that our own hearts are led astray so easily as we see the pleasures that sin offers. We thank you for your son Jesus who perfectly resisted every temptation. We pray that you would allow us to imitate him through the work of your Spirit, through his indwelling presence. And I pray even now that you would cause our hearts to be turned more closely to you as we look at your word. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. The Magician's Nephew is a story by C.S. Lewis that's part of the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Magician's Nephew, there's a young boy named Diggory. And Diggory is given the task by the great lion Aslan to go into this garden He's to go through this gate in this garden, and in the garden he's to find this tree, the tree of life, and he's to pluck an apple from this tree and 
not take it for himself, not take it for anyone but Aslan and bring it back to him. So Diggory goes to this garden, and as he approaches the garden, he sees a sign that reads thusly, Come in by the gold gates or not at all. Take of my fruit for others or forbear. For those who steal or those who climb my wall shall find their heart's desire and find despair. Diggory goes into the garden, begins to take the apple, and there he sees the witch. There, only a few yards away, we read, from him stood the witch. She was just throwing away the core of an apple which she had eaten. The juice was darker than you would expect, and and it made a horrid stain round her mouth. Diggory guessed at once that she must have climbed over the wall. And he began to see that there might be some sense in that last line about getting your heart's desire and getting despair along with it. For the witch looked stronger and prouder than ever, and even in a way triumphant, but her face was deadly white, white as salt. Diggory encounters the witch there, and he takes the apple, and the witch tries to convince him to take it for himself, or at least to take it back to his mother who is, who is ill and dying. Diggory withstands these temptations and takes the, ba- the apple back to Aslan, and he asks Aslan, he says, is it true that the witch is going to be able to have this eternal youth? She ate the apple for herself. Will the apple work for her? And Aslan says, it will. Listen to this. Things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery. And already she begins to know it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. He asks about his mother, Diggory does, and Aslan says, yes, the apple would have worked for your mother, but understand that it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and said it would have been better to die in that illness. I think that interaction between Aslan and Diggory and that story of the apple is a great illustration of sin. Sin is pleasurable. Sin brings about a temporary happiness and and even enjoyment. But the lie of sin, the lie that sin always tells us, is that if you participate in me, the joy that you feel will be greater than the misery. The pleasure in me, in sin, is greater than my misery, and that is always, always, always a lie. And it is a lie that you and I fall for time and time again. Sin says, the pleasure to be had in me is greater than my misery. And you and I buy that line time and time again. 
Sin tells us this, look, uh, it will feel good to get angry with an ungodly anger in this situation. It will feel good to yell and to shout and to scream. And it's half true. It does. It feels good to let it all out, doesn't it? But sin's lie is that the misery and the pain and the hurt relationships far outweigh the temporary joy from indulging that sin. Sin tells us, look, immorality feels good. Participating in in these acts is going to make you feel good, and it does, but sin doesn't tell you about the emptiness and the loneliness and the shame and the guilt and the misery that follows. Sin lies to us. And because of our sin nature, because of our, our fleshly desires, we want to believe the lie, the deceit of sin. There's only one human being, only one person who has consistently, without fail, seen through sin's lie. And that person is the person, Jesus Christ. And here in Luke chapter 4, we see this story of Satan enticing Jesus, and we see that Jesus perfectly understands sin's lie. We're going to see that Jesus understands that the joy, the pleasure that sin offers is of no comparison to the joy and the pleasure of obedience to God. Jesus sees through sin's lie and deceit perfectly. And kind of the central idea, the application that I want us each to draw from the story this morning is that in Christ, in Jesus, you and I have the ability to resist the deceitfulness of sin as well. In Jesus Christ, as we become one with Christ, as we place our faith in him alone for our salvation, as we become these new creatures, you and I also have the ability to see through the deceit of sin, to see that the joy of following God in obedience is greater than the temporary joy of sin. Let's first look at the background to this story here in the Gospel of Luke. And let's look at verses 1 and 2. Luke tells us that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan River. Remember, he's, he's just been baptized. And he returns from that. And it says that he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he's being led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, he goes without food. Just kind of as a little note here, something interesting to observe. I think there's a lot of parallels between Jesus' time in the wilderness and the time that the nation of Israel spent in the wilderness as well. Jesus is without food in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel wanders in the desert for the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, as he quotes scripture, is going to be quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, which both refer to Israel's time in the desert. And so there's some parallels between Israel's time of testing and Jesus' testing as well. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and it says for 40 days he's being attempted by the enemy. And what I think that's saying here is that there's this, this entire period of time, there's some testing that's being taken place in Jesus' life, and it culminates with the story that we're looking at this morning, these three particular tests at the very end of Jesus' time there in the wilderness. It says that he's being tempted by the devil. 
He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. I think there are two questions that come to our mind, and I want to talk about these two questions before we get into the text. Two questions that come to our mind when we think about Jesus' temptation. The first question is this, and you've probably asked this as well as you've come to this text. Is it possible that Jesus what? Is it possible that he could have sinned? Sure, he, he was tempted, but is it possible that Jesus would have actually sinned? And I'd like to answer this question by appealing to the divinity of Jesus. Based upon the fact that Jesus is fully God, my belief is that he could not have sinned. He cannot sin. This is called, in, in theological terms, the impeccability of the Son of God. I don't think that it's possible, based upon his divine nature, that Jesus could have sinned. And, and here's what I mean. Sometimes we think of sin as like this, the rules of God is kind of like this, this law book. And maybe there's like this big, somewhere in the universe, there's this, there's this locked vault. And in this locked vault are all the rules that a person, an entity needs to obey in order to not sin. And we think, okay, there's all these rules, and, and we as human beings, we're constantly violating those laws, but, but God, and God wrote them down, but God also has to abide by these laws. And so God is just like really, really good at obeying the laws. I don't think that's the right way to understand God's law. God's law is derived from his character. It, it emanates from who he is as a being, it's not like God thought, okay, what are some good laws that I want to obey too? God's law is in perfect conformity to his character. Psalm 119 is a great chapter to read through as it talks about God's law and his word and his commandments. And His law is his word that emanates from who he is. And so the laws are in perfect conformity with his character. God never has to struggle with, well, should I do the right thing today or not do the right thing today? God always does exactly the right thing because in his nature, he can't do anything but the right thing. Jesus Christ, again, I want to answer this first question, could Jesus have sinned by appealing to the fact that he was fully God? Jesus Christ, in his divinity, I don't believe could have sinned. It would have been contrary to his character, to his nature. You say, well, does that mean that he wasn't fully human? Of course not. I don't believe that the ability to sin is necessarily an essential part of being human. Someday, I believe each of us are going to still be human, but for those of us who are believers, we're not going to be able to, to sin any longer. So the ability to sin is not part of our capacity as, as humans or our character as human beings. On the fact that Jesus was fully God, was completely divine, I don't believe that it was possible that he could have sinned. Jesus could not act in a way that was contrary to his character. Sin is not defined as some sort of arbitrary law out there in the universe that everybody has to obey. Sin is defined in its reference to God. Anything that God wouldn't want us to do or wouldn't do or is contrary to his nature is sin. Okay, then what's the second question? If Jesus Christ couldn't have sinned, were the temptations what? Were they real? <laughs> if it's not a possibility that Jesus can sin, in what sense are these temptations, real temptations? Keep your finger in the book of Luke. And if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I think, expresses the nature of the temptations well, and why we can say that Jesus was truly tempted. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, we come to verse 17. So the first question, is it possible that Jesus could have sinned? I appealed to his divinity, the fact that he was fully God, and say, I don't think so. You say, well, is it, were the temptations real? And here I appeal to his humanity and say, absolutely. The fact that he's fully human means that these tests, I believe, were true temptations. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, Jesus, he, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. It expresses this idea as well. Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's what I think the writer of Hebrews and the writer of these different gospel accounts that talk about Jesus' temptation is saying, as a human being, Jesus Christ was fully and completely aware of the benefit that a sinful action could bring him. As a human being with a human nature, Jesus was fully aware of the benefit that sin could bring to him. He understood that if he practiced gluttony, he understood because he had a physical body, he knew the pleasure that that might bring. He understood as a physical being the pleasure that immorality could bring about. When he was in a situation where it would be helpful for him to lie, as a human being, he could see the benefit of that. What he also could see because of his divinity was how completely and utterly worthless that benefit would be in light of the pleasure of being completely and totally and thoroughly obedient to God the Father. In fact, he understood the draw of temptation far more than you and I do. Imagine there's a cheesecake on the counter. And it's a cheesecake with a strawberry and some, some juice on the cheesecake. And there's a nice tall glass of milk next to it. It's in the afternoon. And, and let's say you're not on a diet. How long does that cheesecake last on the counter? Not very long, if you're me. But let's say that you are on a diet and you're trying to be very careful what you eat, that cheesecake, you understand the draw of that cheesecake perhaps far more than a person who just consumes it. You understand, boy, that that strawberry would taste really good. You understand, to a fuller extent, the pleasure that can be derived from that cheesecake. Now, let let me continue the analogy just one step further. Let's say that there's that cheesecake right there on the counter, 
and there's someone standing next to the cheesecake, and that person says, look, if you do not eat this cheesecake, I'm going to give you $3 million. You still understand the benefit of that cheesecake, right? You're human. You understand how good that strawberry will taste and how good the cheesecake would taste, but you understand the pleasure that would be gained from that is nothing in comparison with the pleasure the joy that's to be derived from that $3 million. Jesus Christ, as fully God and fully man, as fully man, he understands the joy that is temporary and fleeting that can be derived from indulging the flesh, but as the Son of God, as is in his divine nature, he understands fully the far greater pleasure that can be derived from complete obedience. Here's the point for us. Through faith, we have access to the divine Son of God that can help us see through the lie of sin, through the deceitfulness of sin, through the temporary pleasures that sin offers us, and can help us gain an understanding of what pure, perfect, and total obedience looks like. Let's look at the first temptation with that framework. With that framework, let's look at the first temptation. Let's look at verses 3 and 5. Verses 3 and 5. We're going to look at the story. We're going to see what the temptation was. We're going to see what the lie was. And then we're going to see what Jesus rightly understood as the truth. The first temptation, that the devil comes to him, and he says this. If you are the Son of God, if it's true that you're the Son of God, command this stone... To become bread, in verse 4, Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, or, but man shall not live by bread alone. That's where Luke ends the quotation here. Remember the state of Jesus at this point. He's been fasting for 40 days. His, his body is at a point at which he's already gone through. His, his body has probably kind of done away with all the, the fat. It's consumed all the fat in his body. It's been eating away at muscle. He's at that point where his body is beginning to eat away at its its own internal organs. He recognizes that he's at a very dangerous place physically. There's also probably some emotional and and just uh, mental stress that Jesus is undergoing at this point in his fasting. For a normal person, their resistance is going to be low. And it's at this low point that Satan approaches Jesus with this offer. The offer, we can see that the draw that a human being would have to this offer, the physical body wants food. The physical body wants to consume food. And we know that it's not a sin for Jesus to ever use his, his powers as God to create food. We know that he does this in the feeding of the 5,000. But here's the question, what's the lie What's the lie that Satan is presenting Jesus with? The lie is this. I am not cared for. I am not cared for. That's the lie that's presented here. Satan is telling Jesus, look, God is not caring for you the way that God needs to care for you. Uh, Jesus understood that he was here only to do God's will. And God had not told him to do this. This was contrary to the Father's will. And what Satan is telling him is, look, God is not providing for you. You need to provide for yourself. That's the lie. The truth that Jesus rightly understands, 
he communicates in verse 4. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Here's the truth that Jesus understood. God will provide for me. Keep your finger there in Luke chapter 4 and turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we look at Jesus' replies. And so you can turn there a couple of times. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Jesus quotes from verse 3. Now let me give you a little bit of the context here. Moses is telling the people that they are to obey God's commandments. Verse 2 says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And listen to this. Verse 2. God did this that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Do you get that? God sometimes tested the people of Israel so that he could know what was in their heart. Sometimes he failed to provide for them physically in order to test what was happening within them spiritually. Whether or not you would keep his commandments, verse 3, this is what Jesus quotes at the end, and he humbled you and let your hunger and, and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus says, look, uh, it's true that right now I don't have physical food, and it's not in God's plan to provide me with physical food right now, but God has a perfect plan. The lie of sin says whenever you're going through a tough time, whenever you're going through a tough time, the lie that sin tells you is that that means that God isn't providing for you, that God doesn't care for you. The truth is that even in tough times, God has an ideal and a perfect plan for you. Went down to Texas over Thanksgiving and had breakfast one time with a man, and we were talking about it, a, his adoption journey. And he told me about just a very, very difficult period in his life. He said there was a period of, of I don't remember the exact amount of time, but about five, six years where he and his wife were, were trying to have children, biological children. He said that was a very dark time in our lives. It wasn't enjoyable to go through, and, and many of you have felt that, that pain as well. He said, but what happened during that five, six-year period is we continued to trust God. And God didn't answer the prayers that we had in the way that we wanted God to answer those prayers, but God was there. And then he said this, and I think this is very striking. You'll often hear this from people who've gone through tough times. He said, and you know what? I wouldn't trade those years for anything. How is that possible? But over and over again, you hear it from people who've gone through tough times in a godly way. I wouldn't trade those times for anything. How can they say that? They can say that because God was providing for them in a way far deeper than the physical or the emotional needs in their life. 
Jesus tells Satan, look, just because I don't have physical food right now, just because God hasn't provided me with physical sustenance, doesn't mean that I take matters into my own time, own hands and do something that's contrary to his will. I am provided for. God does provide for me. Here's the way of what I would tell you by way of application. What is the famine that you're going through in your life right now? Maybe it's a physical trial. You are going through some tough times with your body. There's something physically going on with you. And the temptation is for you to say, I'm not cared for. God isn't caring for me. And then the temptation is to respond in a sinful way. Or maybe it's an emotionally tough time. You're in an emotional desert right now. It's an emotional, an emotional famine. Say, God, I'm not provided for. God isn't caring for me. The truth of Scripture is that God does provide for you. In those times of famine, the temptation is that we take things into our own hands. I, I'm, I'm lonely. I'm in this time of, of emotional famine. I'm lonely, therefore, I'm going to become bitter. Or I'm going to turn to pornography. Or I am in this time of emotional famine. Sometimes it gets so bad that we say, I'm going to take my own life. I'm going to take my life into my own hands. The lie, the lie is that I'm not cared for. The truth of Scripture is that God provides for me. And even in those times of famine, God is providing for our deeper needs. Jesus understands that perfectly. He sees through the enemy's deception, and he calls Satan out on it. Let's now look at verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8 kind of an interesting progression here. And actually, verses 5 through 8 in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that, they, that this story comes at the very end. And Matthew probably is presenting it in chronological order. Luke is presenting it in a more thematic order. Here in verses 5 through 8, there's an interesting progression. Look, notice what Satan does. It says, The devil took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world a moment of time. And so they go up on this mountain, and they go up on the mountain, and... Uh, all the kingdoms of the world flash before Jesus' eyes in a moment of time. And then, here's the offer. There's the presentation, then the offer. Satan says this, I have been given all authority, and I want to give it to you. There's the offer. You say, well, that, is that true? Does, does Satan even have that sort of ability, that sort of power to, to offer Jesus that? And I, I believe that certainly it's true that Satan is a very powerful being. John chapter 12, verse 31, he's referred to as the God of this world. In John chapter 14, verse 30, he's referred to as, as the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that, listen to the power that Satan has here. Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. 1 John 5, 19, it says, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so Satan is able to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in this moment of time and he's, he's able to make him an offer that to some degree he has the ability to deliver on. He has some degree of authority and power. He says, 
I can give you all this authority, all this power, and the glory that goes with it. Shows them the kingdom, makes the offer, and then what does a good salesman do at the very end? Tells them the price. Tells them the price. He says, if you will worship me. What's the temptation? What's the draw here? Jesus can receive the power of the kingdom that's promised to him without the pain, without the suffering that's going to result at the cross. The problem is the lie. What's the lie that Satan tells him here? The lie that Satan tells Jesus that we believe as well sometimes is that I can worship whomever I please. That's the lie. I can worship whomever I please. We believe that I can worship whomever I please, and sometimes we even tell ourselves this, or sin tells us this, I can worship whomever I please in addition to God. I can engage in worship of the world and engage in worship of God, and the lie tells us my joy in worshiping God plus the world will be greater than my joy if I only worship God. That's the lie. It's never okay to have affection in our heart that equals our affection to God. Scripture calls that adultery, spiritual adultery. Hosea says this in very strong terms in Hosea chapter 4, verse 12. God says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. A spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Strong words, God's words concerning trying to worship God and other gods. What's the truth? What is the truth that Jesus realizes in this story? Uh, Jesus rightly recognizes that God alone is to be worshipped. Turn back to Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is in the context of of talking about worshiping God alone. Verse 12, it says, To take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear worship. In other words, Jesus rightly understands that God's glory cannot be shared with another. It's kind of interesting. Jesus recognizes what a ridiculous offer Satan is giving him here. He understands that Satan does have some authority, some power, but he also recognizes that it's ridiculous to think that Satan has the ability to deliver long-term on this promise. But in the book of Revelation, there's someone who takes Satan up on this offer. In Revelation chapter 13, there's a beast And Satan gives this beast, and says in in Revelation 13, the dragon gave this beast power and throne and great authority. In the end times, the Antichrist is going to receive this power from Satan. And how well is that going to work out for him? Revelation 19 tells us. Revelation 19 says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, that's the Antichrist, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, And against his army, the beast, the one who takes Satan up on this offer, is captured, and with it the false prophet, 
who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, the two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Jesus understands. Worship of God cannot be joined with worship of anyone else or anything else. We must worship God alone. Two application points really here. First of all, is be aware. Be aware of the attempt to deceive ourselves. Ask yourself, look, am I trying to have it both ways? Am I trying to participate in worship of God and, and, and still love the things of the world? Do I want to participate in the sin as I participate in the sin and say, you know what, I, I can ask for forgiveness later. That's a heart that's not worshiping God alone. It's a heart that wants to worship God and the world. Second application as well is be aware of and don't fall for the sales pitch. Again, remember what Satan does. Satan takes Jesus up on this mountain, and he doesn't start off with, hey, worship me, does he? He takes Jesus up to the mountain, and he says, Jesus, here's the kingdoms. Now, here's the power that can be yours. Now, here's the price. Satan, our sin natures, do the same with us. Present us with the opportunity, tell us the price, and we've already bought into the desire to participate. Let's look now at verses 9 through 12 and see the last testing here of Jesus. Verse 9 says that Satan took Jesus up to Jerusalem and and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is probably the the southeast corner of the temple. Uh, It's overlooking the Kidron Valley that some 400 feet below, Josephus, a contemporary historian, tells us that if one stood on this point and, and looked down, their eyes would become dizzy at so high up there. Satan says to Jesus, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Satan's temptation there is, look, Uh, engage in controlling your own destiny here. Uh, Force your father's hand. It's kind of an interesting theological conundrum here. You wonder if Satan is, what he's doing here is he's quoting Psalm 91. You wonder if Jesus is standing there on the pinnacle of the temple with Satan, and then all of a sudden Satan quotes scripture, what Jesus' reaction was to that. Probably not too surprised, uh, Satan is twisting scripture constantly. But Satan begins quoting Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is actually a psalm talking about how those who trust in God can receive protection from God. But Satan's temptation here, the draw is, hey, test the Father. Take your destiny into your own hands. And the reason that this is sin is, it's because it's setting God's will up against his word. What's the, te- what's the lie here? The lie is that I can control God. The lie is that I can control God. That is, I can take scripture and say, well, look, God says A, and if A is true, then I can force him to do B. Jesus sees through this lie perfectly, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 again. Quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He tells Satan why what he's saying is deceitful. Jesus says in verse 12, 
it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6, again looking at the context of this quote of Jesus, it says, uh, it talks about how God is, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people around you. Verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. At Massa, the people tested God to see if he would really provide the physical provisions that he said he would provide, if he'd really provide them with water. Here's the truth that Jesus understands. God cannot be manipulated. The lie says, I can control God. I can do things that will force God to do what I want him to do. The truth that Jesus rightly understands is that God cannot be manipulated. For example, sometimes people use this phrase. They say, well, I'm going to step out in faith. God rewards faith, and so I'm going to step out in faith, and God will do what I want him to do. They say, well, I want this job, and, and I'm going to step out in faith and, and apply for it. And not only am I going to apply for it, I'm going to begin buying things like I already had this new paying job. I'm stepping out in faith. Uh, churches can do this as well. We're, we're stepping out in faith. Or a person can do this in a relationship. Young man can say, God, I, I want to date that young lady. And yeah, I know that she's not a believer, but God, if you don't want this to take place, I know that you could stop me. And so if you don't want me to ask her out, strike me with laryngitis. Am I still I'm good. You must want me to date her. Or says, look, God, if, if you let me have this, if you give me this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this ministry for you. I'm going to go to foreign missions if you let me marry this girl. What are we trying to do? Manipulate God. Like God is some sort of magic genie in a bottle. We, we rub the bottle the right way, the lamp the right way. Jesus comes out. God comes out and says, God, this is what I want. I'm asking in faith. You don't have to be at this church very long to know that I hate, I hate with every fiber of my being the health and wealth false gospel. The health and wealth false gospel tells us this. It tells us that we can manipulate God, and if we give God money or give these ministries money, The health and wealth gospel tells us God will give us money as well. The health and wealth gospel says God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be rich. God wants to give you all these physical things. I hate that false gospel. This false gospel takes passages like Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, which tells us to bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. And health and wealth gospel people say, see, tithe to God, give to my ministry, and God will open the heavens and you'll receive all sorts of physical blessings. Test God, test God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's trying to manipulate God to coerce God into blessing us with physical possessions. It's not the gospel. And it's not how God operates. 
You and I cannot control what God does in our lives. We cannot brazenly approach the throne of God and say, God, I've done this, so you must do this. We can take his promises and we trust him to operate in a manner that is consistent with his character. But you and I are not God's masters. We are his servants. And a heart that has been transformed by the gospel understands that the purpose of prayer, the purpose of faith, is to conform ourselves with God's will and participate in his plan for our lives, not come up with our own plan. Recently, in in August of 2009, the New York Times reported a story from the Southwest Believers Convention, a health and wealth gospel convention. And one pastor there said this. This is August of last year. Everybody else is having a famine, but God's covenant people will be having the best of times. Sow your money. Let your money drop like seeds in this good ground like my ministry. And uh, the New York Times closes the story with this line. At that, hundreds streamed down the aisles to the stage laying envelopes, cash, and coins on the carpeted steps. Al Mohler, president of Southern Theological Seminary, says this about the health and wealth gospel, and he's exactly right. He says, the promise with the health and wealth gospel is that it promises too little. It promises too little. The true gospel promises us far more than physical blessings. Jesus understands that. Sin lies to us. It deceives us. It tricks us. It says, engage in me and experience joy that's worse than the misery. And yet the misery is far, far worse every single time than the pleasure to be derived from sin. Jesus, as divine God, understands the joy of being in perfect obedience and fellowship with the Father. Jesus gets it. He understands it. And you and I fall for the lie of sin time and time again, but we can turn to the person of Jesus Christ and say, help me understand the value of possessing you far above all other things. In the Washington Courier this last week, there was an interesting story about an elderly woman. She received a phone call from a young man She picked up the phone, and the young man said, Grandma, it's me, your grandson. She says, where are you? He says, I'm in London. I was here for a wedding. I've been in an accident. I need $2,600, or I can't come home. She says, you don't sound like my grandson. He says, I'm in London. Everyone here talks funny. He goes, and and she goes, well, I don't know. He goes, go to Walmart, transfer the money. She says, okay. And so she hangs up the phone with this man, and she calls her son, and she says, I need you to take me to Walmart. He says, why? She goes, my grandson's in in London. He needs the money. He goes, I don't think your grandson's in London. Please do it, do it, do it. So he humors her. He takes her to Walmart. And as they get there, he convinces her not to transfer the money. They go back home, and this brazen crook calls again. But this time, the son answers the phone. He says, he says, you aren't her grandson. <laughs> you aren't her grandson. And the son looks at his mom and says, this is not your grandson. And the woman tells off the young man and hangs up the phone. 
She needed the discernment of the Son. If you and I are going to resist the deceitfulness of sin, we need the Son. Only Jesus Christ has experienced the temptation of sin both as a human and as God. As a human, he can rightly assess the value that that temptation has. He understands how good it feels to eat. He understands how good it might feel to lie. He understands all of those things. And yet, unlike you and I, he also understands the joy of perfect obedience. We need the Son. In Christ, you and I can resist the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, and we thank you that in him we can perfectly endure. We pray that you would indwell us. We pray that our faith would be in your son alone for our salvation. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's not placed their faith in your son, we pray that they would be able to do so, that you would draw them to you even today. We pray this in his name for your glory. Amen.